0: Talking about the racially motivated attack on a grocery store in Buffalo over the weekend that left ten dead in a predominantly African American neighborhood, police are calling it an act of vicious racism. Um, it's also being felt on this side of the border, not just because Buffalo is so close to Toronto. I mean, I lived in Toronto for quite a while, and Buffalo because all your cable comes from there, it almost feels like it's next door. So you can imagine just the impact that that the shooting has had in Canada's biggest city. It also comes amid warnings in this country about racially motivated attacks. We've seen them here. Uh, It remains white supremacist extreme groups remain the biggest domestic terrorist threat, says CSIS, in this country as well with researchers identifying some 300 active right-wing hate groups with estimates of tens of thousands more drawn to the movement, but with no uh, affiliations or such. There have been seven attacks in Canada since 2014, uh, driven by extremist violence, killing 26 people. We all remember the attack on the mosque in Quebec City in 2017 that killed uh, six warshippers there. So what is the state here in Canada? What are we doing to fight it? And how much do we know about the problem? Joining me now is Barbara Perry. She's a professor of criminology and justice at Ontario Tech University in Oshawa and director of the Centre on Hate, Bias and Extremism. Barbara Perry, thank you so much. Good to be with you. Uh, Having lived in Toronto for quite a while, I know how close Buffalo feels. Um, This one, I imagine, hit close to home.
1: Yeah, it did. And and I mean, historically, I, I grew up in uh, rural Ontario, just east of here. So, you know, all of our media was coming from Buffalo. So, um, you know, I really feel like it is a part of our community. If we think about, you know, our ball team and our hockey teams, uh, you know, have, have played in, in Buffalo. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's almost as if it happened to us. And it did, you know, close neighbors. It, it's, a, it's an artificial border uh, between Canada and the U.S. And I think that their pain is our pain in this sort of context.
0: What was your reaction to the news when it first first broke? What what were the first things that you thought when you started hearing about what had happened and and what might be behind it?
1: Well, I'll be honest and say uh, it was essentially, oh, not again, um, you know. And then anger and grief um, that it continues to happen with. Uh, Increasing regularity and frustrating regularity. Uh, you know, we've seen horrific murders like this across the across the globe over the past few years, and even in the Canadian context over the past uh, what seven years or so, we've seen 25 uh, people slain in uh, attacks motivated by far right violence. Just in terms of mass murders, and in addition to that, a couple of individual homicides. Uh, so it it does. I think, resurrect concerns about what we've already seen here. uh, And the fact that in neither country are we being very effective in pushing back against white supremacy, white nationalism, uh, the sort of hatred that inspired this young man. Uh,
0: What what relates this attack? What do we know about this attack already that relates it to the others we've seen that that you were just mentioning?
1: Well, clearly, the the far right, the white supremacist motivation that underlay uh, the the crime. Uh, I think one of the things that a lot of people have been talking about is his invocation of the great replacement theory which probably for many of us uh, many Canadians you know the first time that we were introduced to that was after the white uh, sorry the Christchurch murders uh, in New Zealand just a couple of years back where that murderer also had a manifesto where he referred to the great replacement theory which which is essentially I mean there's nothing new about the narrative it really is about the um, the fear that white people are being replaced uh, whether socially or physically or, or biologically by others uh, and in particular you know it, it, it speaks to that fear of the loss of place and, and privilege amongst white men uh, especially. Uh, I think what maybe differentiates the great replacement theory is that it's really a focus as much on the physical uh, extermination of the white race. So they talk about the fact that there is this global conspiracy afoot to eliminate white people, uh, whether that is through assimilation into other other racial categories or through explicit um, murder. And so, you know, they talk about black-on-white crime and brown-on-white crime uh, as all part of that, uh, that great conspiracy. So that Excuse me. White people can be replaced by non-white, non-Christian identities.
0: What's driving the radicalization process, though? Because clearly, this is taken to to an entirely different level. Uh, What's been driving the radicalization process that we're seeing?
1: I think, in the American context, in particular, of course, that the the narratives associated with Donald Trump since his campaign first for leadership of uh, the Republican party, and then for the this uh, campaign for presidency and then through his administration, the narratives around, um, Immigrant, the threats posed by immigrants, by Latinos, by Muslim people, by trans people, by queer people, uh, you know, all of these messages and policies as well. It's not just about, um, you know, such as about his Twitters, but uh, attempting to introduce policies that restrict the rights and freedoms of uh, of these marginalized groups. I think that has played an inordinate role in shaping the emergence, uh, or the resurgence, perhaps we should say, in the American context of the far right of white supremacist, white nationalist uh, groups. He really gave voice to those same kinds of ideologies uh, that have long inspired the far right. So we had that already in, in operation. And then, uh, you know, of course, in the 2020 election, more disinformation and misinformation about uh, you know this this global conspiracy to oust him the QAnon conspiracy theories and then of course COVID uh, comes into play there and, and a, an opportunity that's ripe for exploitation by the far right in terms of scapegoating Asian communities Jewish communities again references to conspiracies about you know global global efforts to uh, take control of all people, again, whether that's, you know, a Jewish cabal or, you know, some other elitist um, uh, coalition. Um, And so we've seen just this incredible growth and dissemination of conspiracy theories and disinformation around COVID, around the pandemic itself, and around uh, the responses, public health responses, vaccines, lockdowns, that sort of thing, and so that's where we start to see, you know, references to the tyrannical government, uh, for example, and, and government overreach. So this anti-statism uh, that's also emerging.
0: How does that manifest? If mean-
1: I can just add one yes. one other piece, I think that helps to explain. Um, Another piece that helps to explain this particular case uh, is the the rise in uh, BIPOC activism we've seen across North America, Black Lives Matter, and uh, probably more in the Canadian context, Indigenous resistance as well, which is also seen as you know an affront uh, to white privilege uh, that you know these voices are so um, so prominent now, and you know they're they're demanding uh, recognition. Of the threat posed, and this is this is pushback. This is backlash uh, violence as well, in part.
0: How does the radicalization process then happen, where where those beliefs then turn into mass murder?
1: It's so hard to say. There's no linear development there. uh, And there's no single profile. Uh, You know, we don't know very much about this particular individual yet. We do do know, uh, or there are reports at least that he was, uh, you know, of interest to police a year or so ago when he raised uh, uh, threats against, uh, I think, his school. But certainly a school in uh, in his hometown, um, so you know there is some history there of uh, you know reaction or anger um, or fear. I mean, who knows what motivated uh, those uh, those particular threats? Um, but. I think again, if we think about the context that we're living in and that, that youth in particular, this is you know this is still a young man, the social isolation that people have experienced over the last couple of years and the exposure then that they've had to online narratives, the disinformation, the conspiracy theories, uh, I think that that absolutely contributes uh, as well. So you know you're already vulnerable because of the anxiety that is being um, created. By COVID and, you know, the, the fear of, uh, of becoming ill or the fear of, you know, losing your job or, uh, you know, economic anxiety in your community, that sort of thing. All of that is manipulable uh, by, by the far right who provide very easy answers that help to explain your situation.
0: I'm speaking with Barbara Perry, Professor of Criminology and Justice at Ontario Tech University in Oshawa and Director of the Centre on Hate, Bias and Extremism. We're talking about the attack uh, as well as uh, white nationalist extremism, uh, the attack in Buffalo over the weekend that left several people dead at a supermarket. When we come back, we'll talk more about uh, the Canadian context, to all this and what are we doing enough to fight back? And if not, why not? That's after this. I'm speaking with Barbara Perry, Professor of Criminology and Justice at Ontario Tech University in Oshawa and director of the Centre on Hate, Bias and Extremism. We're talking about the attack over the weekend at a Buffalo supermarket that left uh, many dead, uh, 10, uh, at a predominantly black, in a predominantly black neighbourhood, African-American neighbourhood in Buffalo, and uh, what we know about uh, the suspect in this case. Uh, Barbara, you mentioned it earlier. In terms of Canada. Uh, Are we doing enough to fight back against this radicalization process? And if not, why not?
1: Well, I think we're very slow to the game. Uh, It really wasn't until a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, that um, policymakers, law enforcement, and intelligence communities really started to take seriously the threat posed by uh, far right extremism uh, in the Canadian context. There'd been this almost um, single-minded obsession with Islamist-inspired extremism, in spite of the fact that, you know, there have been far more incidents of violence generally, not just the homicides I referred to earlier, but far more uh, violence generally associated with the far right uh, in the Canadian context. Um, why is that? That's a that's a challenging question. I think that there is a tendency uh, to to want to attribute this kind of violence, this kind of hatred to someone who is not like us uh, that we can, you know, we can point to the other who is dangerous. We're much less comfortable when it is someone who shares our, uh, our identities, whether that's, you know, racial or religious or, or gender uh, or, or any other identity as well. So I think that, Uh, It took a while to break out of that cycle, that sort of post 9-11 cycle of uh, understanding violent extremism, understanding terrorism uh, as an Islamist issue. Uh, It is certainly, uh, and I think, you know, FBI have now acknowledged this. I think CSIS have even acknowledged this, that in fact, uh, in the current context, it is, we do experience a much greater risk. Uh, at the hands of the far right than uh, than any other movement in the Canadian context
0: how do you address it? How do you stop these kinds of attacks?
1: Well these are difficult ones because these are you know all all of the Canadian uh, cases have been what we I think we think of as, as lone actors, that is individuals who don't affiliate with a particular group. You know, they didn't plan it in uh, in a conspiracy with a number of other people. Um, they're part of the movement. They've been informed by the movement. They've been mobilized by it. Uh, they're consuming their narratives online, but not necessarily engaging with others uh, to, to plan and, and execute uh, the incidents, So those are really challenging. And they, I mean, they're on the social media platforms, but they might not even be engaging with folks. They're just reading, they're consuming, they're not producing. Uh, so, you know, to be able to identify them in advance is, is virtually impossible. Uh, I think that we need to, we need to expand uh, our understanding of, of who has responsibility and who, who needs this, the skills, the capacity to identify risk, you know, in the schools, you know, amongst family members. Uh, and I think there's not a great awareness out there of, of what some of the, the red flags may be in terms of, um, <clears throat> especially for parents, right, monitoring what, where, where your kids are, what they're, what they're doing online. Uh you know, if you're in my house, I don't care if you're you know 15 or, or 20, if you're in my house, I want to know what uh what it is that you're following. Um schools, classmates, peers, uh, you know, I think we need to have uh to build the capacity of uh of everyone across the, the board to identify Markers and it's that's a challenge because there are different markers for each individual, but I think we can see things like you know increasing isolation, self isolation, not enforced isolation, self isolation, um, you know, anger. Um, even you know, people are not necessarily shy in expressing some of their sentiments. You know, are they suddenly um, you know voicing more concerns about immigration or about Muslims or about Black people, whatever the case may be? So um, you know, there I, there's a there's a menu almost uh, you know, that you could uh, you could select from it, it, that the country the. Um, the combination of items on that menu is going to differ uh, person to person. But I think that's an important uh, factor to keep in mind. I think in general, though, you know, where this is where this is happening, where the the radicalization, if you will, the animation is occurring is increasingly online. Uh, So that's someplace that we have not done a very good job uh, in terms of of intervening. Obviously social media companies aren't up to the task uh, on their own, obviously Um, been very slow to um, intervene, uh, to take folks, take folks down um, who are continuing spout this kind of nonsense even if they do then you know we have these fringe uh platforms and those are even more challenging uh to to regulate because they don't want to uh you know they don't even want to have any community standards around you know what is acceptable unacceptable what is hateful what is not hateful um so uh you know social media companies are are incapable of that what can what kinds of of policy, what kind of regulation can we um, bring to bear there? Um, But again, then we raise the challenges of jurisdiction.
0: Uh, What can we do now? What must be done? What lessons must be learned from this latest horrific event?
1: Oh, I think I think aware uh, our own awareness, our critical digital literacy. You know, we've talked about critical literacy for, for years, um, but I think that that digital uh, literacy is increasingly important, not just for youth, but for adults. I mean, if we look at, at people who are drawn into uh, conspiracy theories and disinformation, for example, I mean these these are these are middle aged and older people as well as uh, as well as youth how can we intervene there, right? What can we do in the workplace to ensure that we're, we're providing people with the skills to reflect on what it is that's coming across their screens?
0: Barbara Perry, thank you so much for your time tonight.
1: Thank you.